This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Secularism. My name is Carrie Lynn Evans, and I'm joined today by Dr. James Reeves to talk about his book, Godless Fictions in the 18th Century, A Literary History of Atheism. James, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here and to be able to talk to you today. Yeah, so let's start by talking about uh, your background a little bit and how you came to work in your field. Um, yeah, that's a great question. I, th- I think about this a lot because sometimes it seems like my interest just at some point popped up out of nowhere. Um, but I think that like a lot of academics, uh, my interest in so I should state my field first, I guess. Uh, I'm a scholar of 18th century British literature, but I also see myself more generally as someone who's just interested in issues of secularism, religion, and in particular, Christianity's relationship with other religions. Um, And I think that my interest in these fields, these pretty broad fields, is both personal and professional, like a lot of academics. So I grew up in a really small, largely evangelical community in Central Texas. Um, I learned to read closely or to do close reading and to analyze text basically in Sunday school classes. Um, And so my environment growing up was this kind of close-knit Southern Baptist community, and I wasn't really exposed to a lot of other viewpoints. I never really got to travel much outside of the small town that I lived in. There were, I think at the time, the population sign said something like 630 people were there. It was a big event when they actually moved a stoplight into the downtown area. Um, But then I went to undergrad, and I took a class on the poet John Milton uh, with a professor named Faisal Muhammad, uh, and I just felt right at home. So I'd gone to undergrad. I planned to be a business major, basically because I had no idea what I was doing, and that's what my older brother had done. So I just kind of followed in his footsteps. Um, but then I took this Milton class, and I just loved it. I felt at home. I felt like I knew what I was doing. I loved the religious issues uh, that were kind of entangled with Milton's politics. Um, and so I decided at some point in undergrad that I was going to go to graduate school. And I thought I was going to be a Miltonist. Uh, But then I went to, I started grad school at Oxford in the UK. And I discovered there that there were several really smart people in my cohort uh, that I felt at the time were much smarter than me. Um, And rather than going the same route as them, many of them were also going to be Miltonists. I sort of retreated, rethought things, and somehow wound up interested in the 18th century probably because it's traditionally seen as this era in which Christianity is opened up to critique and something like secularization emerges. So at Oxford, I also encountered new ideas, cultures, worldviews, really for the first time in my life. Um, I have this memory of going into Blackwell's bookstore for the first time and going down to the religion section and just being kind of naive and just shocked to see just what was available in the religion section other than just kind of the Protestant Christianity 
type books that I'd been familiar with growing up. Um, and since then, one of my primary interests has been in Christianity's relationship with other world religions, as I've said before, uh, and the way that these relationships are imagined by Christians, specifically in creative literature in the 18th century. Okay, fantastic. So tell us how this particular book came to be. Sure. So the first thing I'll say is that like many first books, mine is a revised version of what was my doctoral dissertation. And as I was doing my reading for comp exams, uh, specifically in 18th century British literature, uh, I kept notice noticing that these atheist characters kept popping up in novels or poetry, or I'd read essays that were lamenting that the age is one in which atheism was thought to be on the rise or something like that. Um, but at the same time, I really couldn't identify any actual self-declared atheists in the period. Um, and so now, one of the things, there are people that in the period that I would, uh, that I suspect were atheists. Um, but at the time, the, there was no one that I could just identify off the top of my head and say, aha, this was, this is an atheist. Um, on top of that, the secondary literature I was reading seemed to equate references to atheism as references to deism. Uh, and the exception to that, I think, is an 18th century scholar named Roger D. Lund, who's actually done, um, he's produced several articles on atheism. But overall, I found this really strange that there were all of these characters popping up that were called atheists by their authors, um, but then no one seemed to be talking about it. And then the more that I looked into it, the more I grew convinced that writers at the time really were concerned about all out atheism rather than deism or other forms of heterodoxy. Uh, and that fict fictional representations of atheism could teach us a lot, not only about why unbelief was so worrisome uh, to these 18th century authors, but also about how conceptions of atheism conversely impacted religious belief itself. Okay. So before we get to the literature, I want to ask you about the situation with atheism or unbelief in the 18th uh, century in Britain, which you've started to talk about already. Um, in your book, you explain that there are some challenges to getting a clear picture of this, uh, not least of which is the fact that the word atheism meant something different then. So can you give us a little more context? Yeah, so atheism at the time, so in the 1600s, even well into the 1700s, um, a lot of the time it's basically just a put down or an insult. It's a, uh, a term that was used to slander political opponents. Um, and so that's one thing that makes it really difficult to determine whether we're actually looking at someone who really was what we would consider a modern atheist or someone who disbelieves in God's existence. Um, or whether we're just looking at someone who's trying to, uh, who's being slandered or insulted by people who are their rivals, you know, whether politically, culturally, or whatever. Um, and so because it's an insult that can basically just be applied to a range of heterodox opinions or, you know, whatever the person using the insult considers to be heterodox, um, that makes it tricky to figure out when we're actually talking about what we would consider atheism. Um, the other thing that's at play is that there were severe legal limits on toleration at the time. So even after 1689, in which you have this, uh, what's called the Toleration Act now was, um, was issued, uh, toleration was only granted in very limited capacity to Trinitarian Protestants, uh, but it left out, for instance, Catholics or unbelievers. Um, because of this, this meant that there was uh, there were severe kind of legal uh, reasons that someone might not want to come out and actually just declare themselves to be an atheist. Um, and so kind of the examples that I, I give often to people who 
ask about this, uh, are this pair of Thomases that I'll just call this doubting Thomases, right? Um, so there's one Thomas named Thomas Aikenhead, who's actually the last person in the British Isles to be executed for blasphemy. Um, and so he was executed in 1697. Uh, he was a student at the University of Edinburgh. He had, according to some people who uh, disliked him and who'd been around him, they said that he'd called the scriptures poetical fictions. Um, and so he was actually executed for this. There was also another Thomas, Thomas Woolston, uh, who was a fellow at the University of Cambridge, who died imprisoned uh, in 1733 after he was unable to pay uh, some fines or fees that were levied on him for his heterodox beliefs about scriptural interpretation. So I give those examples just to say that um, even though direct uh, political or legal intervention against people who were considered heterodox or blasphemers was declining throughout the 1700s, the specter of persecution was really still, um, you know, was very recent. You know, 1697 isn't that long ago for many of the authors uh, that I'm looking at. Um, and so it makes a lot of sense that an atheist or someone who had atheist tendencies would be hesitant to declare themselves an atheist. And therefore, because of this, our historical searches for full out modern atheists have to rely on context clues, hidden meanings, and so forth. Um, and then, like I said, it also means that we can't trust accusations of atheism leveled against individuals by political or social rivals. There are, like I said, um, individuals that I suspect were probably atheists or at least close to it. Uh, someone like David Hume. Uh, there were also anonymous tracts that were written in support of godlessness, as Roger Maoli's recently written about in an essay for 18th century studies. Um, he discovered a pamphlet from, I believe, the 1730s or 1740s, uh, which doesn't give the author's name, but it's a long argument in favor of atheism. Uh, but at the same time, there were no public self-avowed atheists for many of the reasons I've just mentioned. Okay. So you suggest that there are some special advantages to studying literature when approaching these questions about atheism in the 18th century. Um, so perhaps tell us why that is, and in broad strokes, how the literature portrays the believer and unbeliever. Right. So I think the biggest thing for me is that whereas um, searching for real world atheists or some, you know, a real individual trying to determine whether or not they were what we would consider an atheist. Um, you have to rely on all these different things or you have to kind of read between the lines, like I've been saying. Um, fictional atheists are pretty clearly defined as atheists by the authors who created them um, rather than as deists or uh, in some cases, even um, atheists are dis distinguished from libertines or rakes, uh, whereas they're often kind of alighted in scholarship. Uh, and so the very basic point is just that fictional atheists are defined as atheists by the people who created them. Uh, and then because of that, I think the literature tells us why atheism was so reviled and so worry, uh, worrisome to the period's thinkers. Um, and so it's not just the case, right, that 18th century writers were backwards, hell-bent on kind of maintaining existing power structures or afraid of death and therefore clung to the afterlife and things like this, though certainly individuals could be in or, or all of those things. Um, it's that I think they had severe, uh, sincere and severe reservations about what a world without God would look like. Um, and so for us, that can seem sort of strange, uh, but it's worth remembering that they really didn't know what a society full of atheists or that's um, where atheism is really a live option. They didn't know what that would actually look like in practice. So with all of that in mind, uh, I think that literary works can be approached as sort of experimental kind of imaginative playgrounds in which authors could think through the limits of belief, kind of the potential repercussions of unbelief, and then ultimately what the world might look like without God. 
So you also spend some time discussing Charles Taylor's theories about the collective psychology of secularization, if I can kind of call it that, and how you agree or disagree with his characterization. So how does that figure into your literary analysis? Yeah, so the first thing I'll say is that Charles Taylor's A Secular Age is really foundational to my work. Um, It was actually... When I was in graduate school, I knew that I wanted to do some sort of work on religion, um, but I wasn't quite sure how that was actually, what that would look like or how you could actually approach religion um, from a scholarly perspective in a literary or a literature department. Um, And so when I encountered a secular age and read it for the first time, it really kind of opened my eyes to what sort of um, ideas or what sort of um, kind of practices or uh, frameworks I could use to approach my work. Uh, and so he's been foundational in that way, uh, along with other scholars of secularization like Talel Assad, uh, Saba Mahmood, and then also in 18th century studies, um, Misty Anderson, who's done wonderful work on Methodism in the period. Um, from Taylor specifically, kind of one of the main ideas that I think that I've, I'm really playing with uh, in this book that I picked up from him, which is it's a pretty simple idea, but I think it's really important, is that belief is nurtured, maintained, and structured by narrative. Um, and not just religious belief, all forms of narrative, all forms of belief uh, are informed by narrative. So in other words, the stories we tell ourselves about the world structure our thoughts and attitudes in some way. Um, and secondly, the other idea that um, I'm really playing with from Taylor is this notion that secularization is not simply uh, the rise of atheism. So a secular world is one in which beliefs, uh, according to Taylor, of beliefs of all forms are fragile and contested, and belief is defined by uh, not just what we think in our heads uh, or our intellectual convictions, but sensibilities and is therefore in many ways affective or precognitive. Um, and so I'm sort of playing with all of those pretty big ideas from Taylor's A Sec- uh, Secular Age. But Where I think I differ with him mainly is just in how he describes the 18th century. Uh, And so his depiction of the 18th century in particular, I think it's, whether it's intentional or not, it often comes across as dry, deistic, concerned pretty much above all else with moralism and rationality. Um, And this is not the picture that I get when I'm looking at imaginative literature from the period. Uh, And so it's worth saying, and it's kind of one of the points that I'm trying to make about Taylor's narrative in a secular age, uh, is that he, as he's creating this narrative of what secularization looks like or how we get from a society in the 1500s in which he says it's very hard to question God's belief uh, to the point where we're at today in which uh, many people take uh, unbelief to be just the kind of default position. Um, As he's telling this story, he uses a lot of literary imaginative examples. So he's looking at people like Camus, Dostoevsky, uh, Matthew Arnold in the 19th century. Uh, But when he looks at the 18th century or the period that's my specialty, uh, he's only really looking at philosophers or um, thinkers who wrote essays. He doesn't look at a lot of imaginative works. And so my book attempts to show just how how much fervor was generated by unbelief, uh, even in authors who weren't zealous, evangelical, or especially doctrinaire. And it does so by looking at the imaginative literature that was produced in the period, rather than just the philosophers that Taylor's primarily concerned with. Okay, fantastic. Well, let's get to some of those authors then. Um, Your first chapter examines satirical writings by Jonathan Swift that make atheism their target. So tell us a little bit about what Swift has written in this vein and why you felt it was an important example. 
Yeah, so I think that Swift is probably the cornerstone of this book. And one of the reasons why um, is, one, he's just such a um, kind of mainstay. He's a canonical figure in 18th century studies. He has been for a while. Um, and there are a lot of debates about uh what Swift actually believed, so what his convictions were. So even at, when he was alive, uh, he was accused of being an atheist. He was cu- accused of being heterodox. Uh, in particular, after he wrote a this kind of long prose satire called A Tale of a Tub, um, which he pu- published in the early 1700s. And kind of the, the story that's been told about that is that by publishing A Tale of a Tub, he basically ruined his chances for advancement in the Church of England, uh, which is why he's basically... Um, he's stationed or he's uh, put in the church of Ireland uh, for his entire life. Um, And so there are a lot of debates about what Swift actually believed. Um, But I think that Swift demonstrates the importance of historicizing belief as Ethan Shagan has done. He has a recent book called the birth of modern belief, which I I think is really great uh, in which Shagan is basically explaining that belief hasn't always meant the same thing, right? So we tend to think of belief as what our intellectual convictions are, what we think in our head. Um, But for Swift, belief is not at all about intellectual conviction or personal conversion, as it would become for evangelicals later in the 18th century. Uh, But for him, it's really about ritual, daily practice, and commitment to the church. And the church here for Swift is the Anglican church, right? Um, And so one of the things that Swift would say when he would talk about religion is he would say that you can't control your thoughts, So if an unbelieving thought pops up in your head, it's not your fault. You can only control your practice and the way that you're actually um, physically day to day committing yourself to Christianity, despite your thoughts, perhaps. And so one of the things he frequently satirizes is internalized individualistic forms of belief, um, which he referred to as many uh, Anglicans of his time did as enthusiasm, right? So enthusiasm is this kind of pejorative for uh, people whose religion is highly influenced by what they feel inside of them. And Swift just found that to be a totally perverse form of religious commitment. Um, And so kind of coupling that Swift's ideas of belief being practice, um, commitment to the church and so forth with kind of scholarly uh, focus on trying to determine what Swift's personal convictions are, um, Kind of holding both of those in mind at the same time, I wanted to push back on the scholarly narrative about or the scholarly attempts to determine what Swift believed uh, and to just really make the point that Swift's personal convictions are beside the point. Right. And for Swift himself, um, that's the case as well. And so many scholars, when they've looked at Swift satires like A Tale of a Tub or The Argument Against Abolishing Christianity, um, which I'll talk about in just uh, in just a second uh, in a little bit more detail. Um, they're always trying to determine like what ideas or what intellectual traditions Swift is playing with. Whereas I want to think about kind of the attitudes, the affects, or the sensibilities that Swift is concerned with when he talks about belief. Um, so that, for instance, in A Tale of a Tub, when he's citing or playing with ideas from the Roman poet Lucretius, uh, who's largely responsible for promulgating uh, Epicurean or materialistic ideas in the 16 and 1700s, um, just because Swift is citing Lucretius doesn't mean that he's in that intellectual tradition, right? So that's kind of a, a basic point. But the other thing is that just that kind of this scholarly attempt to determine what Swift himself believed uh, is basically a fool's errand because that wasn't what belief meant to him in the first place. 
Um, and then so some of the works I'm looking at specifically are, like I said, uh, A Tale of a Tub, um, which is this long prose satire uh, in which Swift is uh, all at once ridiculing materialism, um, Protestant sects like uh, the Presbyterians or the Congregationalists. Um, Catholicism uh, is one of his targets as well. So he's basically taking aim at any religion or irreligious position outside of his Anglican purview. Um, and then I'm also one of the works that I'm really interested in and that starts the chapter on Swift is this short uh, pamphlet satire called An Argument Against Abolishing Christianity, um, which I mentioned uh, just a moment ago, in which it begins with uh, the narrator who, um, so in many of Swift's satires, his narrators basically voice positions that Swift himself uh, just thought were um, completely awful. Um, and so this narrator at the beginning of Argument Against Abolishing Christianity says, oh, by the way, last week, a couple of guys somewhere in England uh, randomly discovered that there is no God. Right. And so the premise of this whole pamphlet is this narrator talking to talking through the implications of this discovery that God doesn't exist. And kind of from Swift's position, uh, the his authorial position, uh, kind of the joke is that two guys, two random guys could never prove God's non-existence. That's just for Swift. That's something that you can't prove. And so right from the start, we're supposed to understand that this narrator is absurd. His ideas are absurd. Uh, and then when you get to the end of this pamphlet, you find out that what the uh, the narrator's point is, is that, well, if these guys have figured out that there's no God, then we should be able to do with all sorts of virtue or morality or ethics and be able to do whatever we want to do. Um, and that's kind of the general thrust of all of Swift's many satires on irreligion is that um, he presents us with these hypothetical situations in which God is totally absent. And then because of that, uh, people in Swift's imaginative worlds are basically allowed to just behave as awfully as possible. Uh, and that's consistent from the beginning of his career all the way through uh, the argument against abolishing Christianity to his major satires like A Modest Proposal or Gulliver's Travels in the 1720s. Right. So you suggest that for Swift, his fear of atheism was enough to make him uncharacteristically charitable towards non-Christian groups that elsewhere he's quite critical of, almost as if to say he found any belief better than no belief. So is this something you're seeing in a number of his satires? Yeah, so it pops up, for instance, uh, in this satire I just mentioned, once again, Argument Against Abolishing Christianity. Um, and so there's another satire that Swift wrote at the time, uh, uh, called uh, The Mechanical Operation of the Spirit, uh, in which he's ridiculing religious zealots or enthusiasts who, again, um, feel like they can, uh, they know that God's spirit is moving within them and therefore God is speaking directly to them. And Swift thought that this was um, just a totally awful idea because who's to say when God is speaking to you and when it's just, you know, the, the vapors in your brain or something. Um, and so in The Mechanical Operation of the Spirit, he ridicules religious zealots. They're the, his primary target, and in that, he's pretty dismissive uh, of Islam as well. And so he makes some uh, pretty snide jokes uh, about Muslims in the mechanical operation of the spirit. However, uh, kind of my point in this chapter is that when Swift shifts his aim to irreligion or atheism, as he does in the argument against abolishing Christianity, um, these non-Christian groups suddenly become much more admirable. So in the argument against abolishing Christianity, again, you have the narrator saying God doesn't exist, so we can... Uh, completely get rid of the church. We can get rid of virtue. We can get rid of all sort of ethics. Um, and then there's this twist at the end where he says, but because of this, uh, the the Turks are basically, so the Ottoman Turks um, are, will be completely scandalized by us because they still believe a God. 
right? And that's the phrase that Swift uses. Um, so the Turks believe a God, we Britons don't. Um, and of course, from Swift's position kind of behind all of this, uh, the joke, but also the cutting edge of the satire or what it's meant to be the cutting edge um, is that the Turks are more admirable than irreligious Britons because they maintain uh, their theistic beliefs. Whereas from Swift's view, uh, theism in Britain is declining. Um, this, this sort of idea also pops up in Gulliver's Travels. So I read Gulliver's Travels as uh, this narrative in which um, Gulliver's traveling to these various kind of absurd lands in which you have tiny people, and then he goes to a land with giant people. Uh, he goes to an island that's floating in the sky. Um, as he's progressing th- across all of these different places, um, he's learning about their religious customs. And the way that things progress in Gulliver's Travels is that uh, in the early portions, every society he encounters have very clear-cut religious practices and beliefs. And then as the book goes on, those beliefs begin to fade to the point that where he's in book four, when he reaches um, what's called the Island of the Winhams, uh, where he meets a bunch of talking horses, um, these Winhams or these talking horses, uh, religion's not mentioned at all. And so you've gone from this focus on religion to at the, by the end of the book, you've seen religion decline. Uh, and once again, Swift's point is that this allows human beings to act in completely immoral, evil ways. And so Gulliver basically do- starts uh, dismembering other human beings and using their skin as uh, hide for his sails. Um, he uses it to create traps to catch other animals and so forth. And so he's just being completely awful. Um, but after Gulliver's done all of this, he leaves Winnemland and uh, he's out at sea. He's lost. He has no hope because... Um, he doesn't know where he's going, uh, but he's ultimately saved by a, na- a man named Pedro de Mendez. Uh, and that last name, de Mendez, um, signifies that probably Pedro de Mendez, uh, this guy who saves Gulliver, is most likely uh, a Jew from Portugal. Uh, and so what Swift does is he has this Jewish character come in, save Gulliver, treat him more humanely than anyone in the book thus far has treated him. He gives him clothes. He gives him food. Um, and what Swift is playing with here is the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? So the idea is that um, Gulliver's lost all of his religious convictions. He's been living in these completely materialistic, godless worlds in which he's able to dismember human beings and everything's falling apart. Um, but then it's this outsider character, outsider from the uh, perspective of British Christianity, this outsider character who comes in and plays the role of moral, virtuous uh character who's able to sort of set things right, at least temporarily again. Um, And so you have it in Gulliver's Travels. And then the last one I'll just mention really quickly is one of my favorite examples is a short poem poem, uh, that Swift wrote called On uh, Dr. Rundle. And it's a poem about this uh, this, uh, bishop named uh, Thomas Rundle, who was up for a bishopric in Gloucester in England. um, But he was denied the post because he was suspected of Arianism. So it was basically suspected that he wasn't Trinitarian. Um, and then while he's denied the post in England, uh, the church, uh, sends him over to Ireland and gives him a post in the Irish church instead. And so Swift and other Irish priests at the time, um, were upset and were thinking, well, if he's not good enough for a post in England, why would you send him over here to Ireland? It was just another instance of what they felt was the Irish church being slighted. Um, however, Swift actually got to know him somewhat and he began to respect him. And he writes this poem on Dr. Rundle. Uh, and one of the lines that I just found, find really compelling uh, is that Swift speaking to those who are running the English church 
um, basically says, even if Rundle were a heathen Turk or Jew, he would be a better priest than the atheists who are running the show in England. Right. And so there's this idea, again, that he's met Rundle. Rundle's a good guy. He's committed to uh, the church. He's committed uh, to virtue and uh, good living. And therefore, for Swift, uh, no matter what his actual beliefs are, he's better than those he considers to be godless. uh, Those who are, uh, from his perspective, kind of driving the Irish church into the ground uh, across the Irish Sea. Um, And so in all those ways, uh, and in many, many more satires. So one of the reasons Swift is the cornerstone is he just wrote so much about atheism in the period. Um, But across all those instances, there's this recurrent theme that atheists or atheism will lead uh, to these dystopian conditions. Um, But at the same time, when Swift is thinking about that, he approaches other non-Christian religions or their adherents much more positively than he does elsewhere. Okay. So next you turn to the poetry of Alexander Pope, whom you describe as profoundly concerned with the deleterious effects of unbelief. So give us a sense of how this theme is continued through his career. Sure. So kind of the weird thing about Pope um, is that unbelief for him is frequently tied to forms of bad belief or too much belief. Um, And so often he will cast unbelief as the natural effect of religious argument or disputations. So, for instance, uh, he has a poem uh, called The Essay on Criticism um, that I believe he publishes in 1711, 1713, somewhere around there. Um, And in The Essay on Criticism, he compares bad literary critics to contentious religious writers who are on the lookout for blasphemy and everything. Right. And so both of these are examples of bad critics uh, or bad, um, bad examples of what it means to be a religious writer. So so Pope is um, always trying to say, let's be generous in religious issues or religious conflict. Um, And all of these different uh, kind of what he thought of as pointless debates about doctrinal issues that no one could possibly ever settle. Um, he thinks that these debates lead to unbelief. So uh, in his moral satires of the 1730s, he would lament uh, clerical laxity, um, and that leads the laity to unbelief. Uh, then in his essay on man in the 1730s, uh, he has this line where he says um, something along the lines of, for modes of faith, let graceless zealots fight. Uh, And so the graceless zealots are those who are arguing about particular modes of faith or doctrinal issues that he sees as inconsequential. Uh, And all of these arguments produce doubts about religion's truthfulness. And so uh, Pope would advocate kind of a simple adherence to a lived out embodied form of, for him, Catholicism uh, or whatever one's uh, own religion is. And kind of a humble adherence to your own religious traditions and practices without all of this doctrinal wrangling or argument. So the other thing to say about Pope is that he was highly concerned with his self-image. And so a lot of his poetry is him attempting, uh, sometimes more successfully than others, uh, to present himself as a Catholic who was generous and open to all Christians. Um, and so he described himself, for instance, as someone who had no sect or particular branch of Christianity. He compared himself to Erasmus uh, on several occasions. He called him. He said that he was like good Erasmus in an honest mean. So kind of this in between between different political parties, different religious groups. Uh, and he's just really concerned with uh, this idea that to be truly religious uh, means to be humble 
and means to be committed to living out your faith practices without denigrating those of others or um, getting into these disputes, which ultimately for him uh, lead to nothing more than atheism. Um, and that's kind of the end result of all religious argument throughout Pope's poetic career. Hmm. So you look especially closely at Pope's mock epic masterpiece, The Dunciad, which focuses on Pope's notion of the godless atheist. Uh, so what did you find in this work? Yeah, so The Dunciad is interesting because it basically paints a mirror image of the inclusive or a perverse sort of mirror image of the inclusive Christianity that Pope uh, attempted to champion in his other poetry. Um, so in the Dunciad, basically what happens is that you have a goddess, the goddess named Dullness. She comes to England. Uh, she calls all of her followers. So her followers are basically bad poets, lawyers, lazy priests, politicians, and anyone else that Pope personally uh, disliked. Um, so she calls all of these individuals to her aid. Um, they hold ridiculous mock epic games. So they attempt to see who can stay awake the longest while listening to another author read his horrible writings and so forth. Uh, until Dolness finally, at the end of the poem, initiates her empire and takes over all aspects of British social, political, and cultural life. Um, she does so by, uh, she just yawns, basically. So she opens her mouth, she yawns, and this yawn puts everyone and everything to sleep and ensures her victory. And the kind of notable thing about that for me to go along with what I was saying earlier about how religious argument uh, leads to unbelief, uh, as well as clerical laxity leading to unbelief, is that when Dullness yawns, uh, her yawn first affects the churches, right? So the churches fail, they fall um, to her rule, and then things spiral out from there in sort of concentric circles. So unbelief is basically ushered in uh, because the churches fall asleep, they uh, stop um, so they stop promoting this simple kind of what Pope and Swift would have thought of in terms of basically common sense Christianity. Um, and because the churches fail, unbelief is then free to be ushered in by those who, uh, according to the poem, reason downward until we doubt of God. Uh, so it's basically a poem about unbelief's victory, and that victory is characterized by vacuity or emptiness, so sleeping uh, selfishness. So all of these different hack writers and bad individuals are basically in it for themselves. So there's kind of this perverse image of community at the end of the poem in which they all come together around Dolness's throne, but they're all only united by their own vanity and pridefulness. Um, and then the final thing that's ushered in is chaos. So chaos and eternal night is what uh, rules the day at the end of this poem. Um, the final thing I, I should say, I guess, is that the main figure in this poem, other than the goddess Dullness, is um, after 1743, Pope revises the poem. He makes some changes to it. Uh, and from that point on, the main figure is this actor and theater manager who was also Pope's rival named Kali Sibber. And Sibber becomes the representative of this chaotic world. He's almost like an incarnation of godlessness, some like a form of an antichrist or something. Um, so his head is repeatedly described as being empty. Uh, he swears and blasphemes repeatedly. And it's said in the poem that his gods are his dice, right? So the dice that he uses to gamble. Uh, and it's worth noting that gambling uh, at the time was associated with godlessness, primarily because uh, it's associated with notions of chance and disorder throughout the period. So from start to finish, the poem is an attempt, uh, like many of Swift's works actually, to imagine the dystopia that would, in Pope's mind, attend the rise of unbelief. 
So in your following chapter, you examine some novels by Sarah Fielding and how they engaged with common ideas at the time about how religious belief and virtuous God-fearing behavior is necessary to be a member of a community. So first, can you elaborate on this notion? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, it's really complex, too. I, th I think that... Um, Primarily what's going on, so uh, for a long time, the 18th century has been described as the age of sensibility or the age of sympathy or something like that. So you have a lot of moral philosophers like Adam Smith, Francis Hutcheson, uh, Lord Kames, um, and then uh, most famously, probably David Hume, uh, who were concerned with trying to figure out why it is that we feel for other people, how social cohesion is maintained. Um, why we want to interact with other individuals. Do we do so for selfish reasons or uh, for benevolent or altruistic reasons? Is it possible to behave sympathetically uh, without just being self-interested and so forth? Um, and so you have a lot of uh, kind of philosophical dialogue about what sympathy is, uh, what it does, how it operates. Um, but then one of the things that occurs in most uh, moral philosophers from the period, the, the big exception here is David Hume, um, is this idea that sympathy and benevolence have to be grounded in something beyond our own personal wants and desires. If it's not grounded in something beyond us, um, then it has no overriding claim on us, according to uh, someone like Francis Hutcheson, for instance. Um, so... For instance, if, the, if, if there's no uh, sense that our sympathetic uh, feelings have an overriding claim on us, um, you know, then we can sympathize with others when it benefits us, but we don't sympathize with them if it doesn't. Uh, so basically, the end of all of these speculations is that God becomes sort of the linchpin in arguments about sympathy. So if benevolence, charity, and sympathy are virtuous, they're only virtuous because God has structured them into our being and a virtue is real, meaningful, and built into the cosmos by the deity. So without the deity, without God, everything was thought to be mere chance, and therefore ethics and morality become simple contests between individuals or groups and their respective wants or needs. Um, and then because of all this, theists are encouraged throughout the period uh, to engage in acts of charity, benevolence, and so forth. This is seen as sort of fitting with the uh, divine design of the universe, that it's fitting to behave in these ways because that's got how God intended it. Uh, while it was thought conversely that atheists had no logical motivation for doing so if it didn't suit their individual needs. And kind of the, the there are different variations or different shades of this uh, between different philosophers like Smith or Hutchinson. Uh, so for instance, um, Adam Smith would say something along the lines of, well, an atheist could be charitable, benevolent uh, and sympathetic. Um, however, it, that those behaviors wouldn't be logically fitting with their atheism. Uh, whereas Hutchison would say something along the lines of they can't be benevolent, charitable or so forth because they just have no reason to be. So there's these kind of ongoing debates uh, in moral philosophy about what sympathy is and then why God is essential for it. And then again, like I said, um, the big outlier here is David Hume, who just completely leaves God out of his uh, his sympathetic system. Okay, so let's turn to Sarah Fielding and her novels. The fact that she was even using the novel as a vehicle deserves to be commented on, as some considered the form to be inherently godless. Is that right? And where do you come down on the perception of atheism, both in her work as well as relating to this question about the novel's form? Right, yeah. So um, as far as your first question about um, 
the form being considered inherently godless. I think that's totally right. Um, and, you know, this is obviously, there's a lot of nuance here, so it's not across the board, um, but novels or at least um, romances. So it's kind of, uh, I guess, worth remembering that the novel as a genre was still in flux at the time. Uh, so many individuals uh, wrote what we now consider novels that wouldn't have thought of themselves as writing novels at the time. But at least romances were viewed suspiciously uh, by many in the period um, as basically waste of time, uh, inculcators of immorality and so forth. Um, and, you know, including this includes William Cooper, who's uh, the subject of my book's fifth chapter. He looks suspiciously on novels for all those reasons. Um, but more than kind of contemporary uh, concerns or skepticism about the emergent novel form, I think that in in my chapter on fielding, I'm more specifically concerned with modern literary scholarship's tendency um, to see the novel basically as a vessel of emergent individualism, uh, one that moves readers away from religious community and therefore belief. And so um, one of the ideas that I think is consistent through a lot of uh, literary scholarship is that novels train readers to be skeptical. And this is something that Catherine Gallagher uh, has really argued really, um, really well in an influential essay on novelistic fiction, that this idea that novels train readers in unbelief. And uh, Gallagher, for instance, isn't talking about belief in God in, in her essay, but oftentimes uh, the novel is aligned with this move, this secularizing move toward godlessness. And the idea is that as the novel rises, um, you know, belief in the Bible declines or something like that. However, um, what I'm trying to say, I think through Fielding's novels, is that Fielding's novels do exactly what Catherine Gallagher say novels do. They, they're trying to train readers to be skeptical, but they're trying to promote skepticism not about religious belief, but about uh, unbelief. Right. So the big example of this is um, the novel that I discuss at greatest length is a novel called The Adventures of David Simple. Um, and it's this it's very simple plots. Um, it's this guy who uh, his brother betrays him. He steals all of the money that David is supposed to inherit. Uh, and then David is left friendless. He's left moneyless. And he therefore goes to London searching for a friend. Uh, he's kind of this like naive, bumbling guy who just thinks that uh, everybody is kind and friendly and therefore he's repeatedly duped. Uh, and so the world that he encounters in London is a world of unbelief. Um, and the big twist is after he's experienced just kind of uh, failure after failure to find a friend, um, we find out that the the person who caused all of this, his brother who stole all of his money, who altered his father's will illegally, um, his brother is an atheist. Right. And so his brother is the one who sort of springboards him into this godless London in which he encounters all these unsympathetic individuals uh, who refuse to interact sociably with him. Uh, and his brother, again, is the springboard of this and his brother is godless. So his brother, to me, becomes both the culmination and the emblem of all the godlessness that David encounters in his time in London searching for friends. Um, and then the other thing I'll say just formally is that uh, Sarah Fielding's fiction is often, in my mind, uh, an extended meditation on the book of Job. So it's a novel about what it means to suffer, uh, whether or not suffering in this life, um, you know, what that means as far as uh, belief in God. How could God allow the good? How could he allow someone like David Simple, who's just kind of um, almost annoyingly uh, 
perfect from start to finish in the book. I mean, he has a few, he he's kind of has a few flaws where he's over curious about people's individual histories, but from start to finish, he's kind to everyone. He's charitable. Um, and how can it possibly be just that this guy is suffering, having his money stolen, repeatedly sick, losing family members and things like that. Uh, and so by addressing these issues, Fielding is providing a novelistic meditation on the book of Job and the problem of suffering. Uh, and because of all this, uh, really what I'm arguing in a nutshell is just this simple idea that the novel's not necessarily in the service of unbelief. It's not necessarily a quote unquote secular genre. Um, and this idea that I'm playing with here has also been picked up in recent work by Kevin Seidel, uh, who's just um, released a book from uh, Cambridge University Press uh, about the novel's relationship to the Bible and how the Bible is employed in 18th century novels. Um but you could also look at, you know, more contemporary novelists uh, from, you know, the 19th century to the present, authors like Marilyn Robinson, Shusaku Endo, or Dostoevsky. Um, all of these novelists, along with someone like Sarah Fielding, for me, make it pretty evident that viewing the novel as being in the service of unbelief or part of this uh, kind of simple secularization narrative in which we move from religious belief to disbelief in God, um, all of these things call that old narrative into question. So do you think that Fielding was trying to send that message intentionally? Was it almost like a, a political act in defense of the novel? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, I think that I'm not entirely sure that Fielding had the novel as a genre in mind as she's as she's doing this. So her novels are very didactic in the sense that um, they're very concerned with teaching moral lessons. Um, and so in many ways, they're actually uh, informed by devotional reading practices uh, from the time. Um, and so I think she would have distinguished her novels from, again, the genre I've referred to as romances, which are about, you know, kind of uh, what goes on behind the scenes in aristocratic households or uh, romantic relationships or quests or things like this, adventures that uh, the aristocracy are involved in. Um, I think she would have distinguished her novels from those romances. Um, I definitely think that she's, whether or not she considers David Simple a novel, um, as we now define it, uh, especially since the, the definition of the term was still up in the air, um, whether or not she did that, I do think that she's deliberately views her literary art um, as being in the service of virtue and morality and sociability um, all of which are equated in her works, uh, like David Simple, with belief in God. Um, and so I think she, she views her works as having a, a very strong moral purpose. Um, I'm not sure uh, if she would see them as necessarily an explicit defense of the novel form, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that does. It makes me think that maybe the criticism was not so much about the form, which like you say, they weren't really, they didn't really have a handle on that, or maybe weren't thinking about the form so much as just the fact that it seemed like gossipy or flights of fancy or a waste of time. You know, there wasn't that work ethic involved in them, maybe. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's totally spot on. So one of the phrases that appears a lot, um, especially later with, uh, with evangelical writers, uh, is this idea that um, that you need to redeem your time or use your time well. Um, and that even pops up in earlier novelists like, um, or actually uh, someone like Samuel Richardson, uh, who's contemporary with Sarah Fielding. Uh, and in his big, long novel, Clarissa, um, Clarissa is obsessed with uh, structuring, her t structuring her time well. 
uh, and not wasting it um, as you might if you're reading these kind of gossipy works as you're talking about. Right. Because it seems like later the didactic novel, I'm, you know, maybe later into the 19th century, the didactic novel kind of became more popular as a vehicle for indoctrinating children into religious belief or good behavior of any kind. Um, that's a really interesting uh, development. Yeah, it's all uh, one one interesting thing I'll, I'll just add to is I think that um, I'm always really hesitant to teach David Simple in my my undergrad classes um, because it is so didactic. Uh, but I think uh, weirdly, I think didactic novels have maybe made a, a strange comeback because um, my students always just love it. Um, they like that there's a clear cut message um, and that there's a point to this, right? There's something that Fielding's trying to communicate to you other than just a plot for plot's sake or something along those lines. Hmm. Um, so I'm not entirely sure what to make of that, but I just say that uh, much to my surprise, students have enjoyed David Simple and Sarah Fielding's didacticism much more than I would have expected before I ever taught it. <laughs> yeah, that is that is unusual. Hmm. Okay. Uh, okay. So let's move on now to Phoebe Gibbs. Her novels portray the evils of atheism manifesting in new ways that we haven't really talked about yet, specifically as the root cause of violence directed against women and the violence associated with imperialism. So this reveals an interesting underlying assumption that um, atheists were and must be always men, uh, for one thing, as well as some other interesting ideas here. So what's going on? Yeah, there are, I, I think there are two different things at play here. Uh, the first is that from many men's perspective, uh, so male authors um, tended to describe atheism as something, to be an atheist, you had to be really bold, really, um, you know, kind of talking about these ideas of uh, sociability and community and sympathy. Um, atheists were characterized or stereotyped as being selfish or self-involved. And that sort of character uh, for many men was considered too bold or too assertive for women who were stereotypically uh, thought to be or needed to be more timorous. Uh, and so the stereotype of women as subordinate or timid is part of what's at, at play here. Um, and this is what causes someone like this guy named James Elphinstone in 1707, uh, 1777, I believe, uh, to make the claim that uh, a female atheist is, quote, the worst of men, right? Um, which is basically a way of saying um, that a woman who is an atheist actually isn't a woman at all, right? It's a contradiction of terms um, because atheism is seen as this uh, masculine evil. Um, while you have someone like the poet Edward Young, um, who considers the concept of what he called a she-atheist, which is a, a weird term that was around at the time, uh, illogical and, again, unfeminine. So you kind of have these, these stereotypes, these misogynistic stereotypes about what it means to be a woman at play. Um, and then on the other hand, uh, many women like Phoebe Gibbs, Mary Estelle, or Sarah Scott, who was another didactic novelist um, around the mid-century, um, these women rejected the idea that women should be quiet and timorous, but at the same time, they grounded their rejection of atheism in the idea that without God, men were basically free to do what they wanted with women, right? So because men had the social political power at the time, an atheist could and would, according to these authors, abuse women when given the opportunity. So part of what's at play with the, the women uh, like Phoebe Gibbs that I discuss in this chapter um, is just, uh, first of all, a distrust of men, 
um, and a desire to reform religious takes on gender rather than abandoning them completely. Um, and then finally, I'll just say um, that, uh, you know, there's not necessarily a, a logical or necessary connection um, that I see, at least historically in the period, but between something like feminism and atheism. And so kind of the example I just point to is that Baron Dolbach in France uh, ran an atheistic salon um, that was closed to women, for instance. Right. So even atheism's uh, supporters could perpetuate this kind of these misogynistic uh ideas about what it means to be properly masculine or properly feminine. Um, and it's because of all of these reasons that atheists are pretty much by and large, always men in the fictions that I'm looking at. Um, there are some rare exceptions. Uh, and so, um, one of the exceptions that proves the rule is in Samuel Richardson's novel, Pamela, uh, there's a character named Mrs. Jukes, uh, who's kind of the in- seen as the instigator in a lot of Pamela's troubles. Um, and whereas the primary antagonist in that novel, this guy named Mr. B who treats Pamela awfully, um, he's able to be redeemed at the end of the novel. Mrs. Jukes isn't. Um, but at the same time, she's described as Pamela says, Mrs. Jukes must be an atheist. Uh, and because of that, she's also described as almost hyper-masculine. So Pamela will comment on how manly her hand looks, for instance, or how her behavior seemed to her not to be womanly, but more like what a man, how a man would behave. Um, and so you just see kind of these stereotypes or these uh, associations of atheism with a sort of perverse masculinity just persisting across the period. Okay, so tell us now more specifically about Gibbs novels, the history of Lady Louisa Stroud and the Honorable Miss Carolyn Stretton. That's one novel. <laughs> and Hardly House Calcutta. So what do we find here? Yeah, so um, it's, yeah, the, Lady Louisa Stroud has a long title. It's also a weird title because um, it's primarily called the history of Lady Louisa Stroud, but she's not the main character. Um, the second character mentioned is. Um but I'll just say that uh, in general, so Gibbs wrote a lot of novels. I think she wrote uh, somewhere upwards of 20. And we're not entirely sure exactly what all she wrote. Um, she was very prolific. Uh, at sometime around 1804, I think she applied to a literary fund because she needed money. Um, and that's how we know what some of the novels that she wrote are. Um But she's writing novels, um, particularly like Lady Louisa Stroud, uh, that are very much in the Richardsonian vein or that echo kind of the themes or formal devices of Samuel Richardson's Pamela and Clarissa. So Lady Louisa Stroud is written as a series of letters between uh, Caroline Stretton, who's the main character, and her friend Louisa Stroud. Uh, And throughout these letters, we get stories of seduction, kidnapping, and male faithlessness. So Caroline is basically betrothed to a man named uh, Lord Westbury, uh, and he's already married. She doesn't know this. She finds out at the last minute, um, and she has to retreat to the countryside uh, because an uncle of hers thinks, well, you've got to get away from the city. You need to get out in the country, and that's going to affect your moral reformation as being out here with us in the country. Um, while she's in the country, she's writing letters to Louisa Stroud, as I've said, just with her observations on what country life is like. Um, Caroline is sort of this very vivacious, energetic letter writer who's often very funny. She has a very satiric eye. And so she's satirizing a lot of things about life in the country. Um, but more seriously, she meets a girl named Letitia, uh, who at some point in the story is seduced by a rake. Um, the rake seduces her, um, 
he makes it very clear that he's not an atheist. He's just what the period called a libertine. So someone who's uh, basically just very interested in parties and women. Um, but Letitia is captured by the rake's atheist friend, this, uh, this guy named um, Horner, who captures her. Uh, he's the rake's accomplice. Uh, he does all of this without the rake's permission. Uh, and then what ends up happening is that Letitia dies from the shock of all of this. Right. So you basically have this atheist character who shows up, kidnaps a woman, the woman dies. And then after this, uh, Caroline declares that uh, Horton, this atheist, is the sole cause of all of the evils in the novel. Um, And then he disappears from the novel completely. So the atheist role is just to show up, cause problems for, for the women and to cause the death of this young woman named Letitia. At the end of the novel, um, Caroline is put into a similar situation with Letitia uh, because there is a planned abduction in which Caroline is going to be taken away and perhaps succumb to a fate like Letitia's. But all of these letter writing women who make up the book's uh, epistolary community uh, intervene. They write her letters. They're basically her saving grace. And so my take on the novel is that um, from this book's point of view about atheism is that atheists for uh, for Gibbs represent male faithlessness and faithlessness in more ways than one, right? So faithlessness to God and then also to women. And that the saving grace here is the female community uh, that's birthed through all of these letters in the book. And so the women basically band together against the male atheist. Uh, and that's what saves Caroline from having to endure a fate just like Letitia's in this book. Um, and then briefly, I'll just say about Hartley House Calcutta. So this is a novel that's written a couple of decades after Lady Louisa Stroud. Um, but Hartley House Calcutta is, as far as I know, the only book of Gibbs um, that we have, which has a modern, uh, in which a modern edition of the novel has been made. And so most of Gibbs's novels you have to access on an online database. Most of them were printed very quickly. And so there's a lot of typos and things that you kind of have to work through. But Hartley House has received the most sustained critical attention of any of her books. Um, And one of the large reasons for that is that it's because it's one of the first British novels that we know of that's set in India. Uh, And so it's about this woman named Sophia Goldborn. She's a young woman, sort of like Caroline Stretton, uh, who's also writes a lot of really energetic, funny Uh, lively letters uh, in which she comments on Indian cultures and customs after she's traveled to India with her father. Um, As she's in India, she comes to admire a Hindu Brahmin. Uh, She begins to recognize Hinduism as a religion that, uh, according to her, is like Christianity and that it preaches love of God and love of our neighbor. Uh, And therefore, uh, Sophia becomes a sort of uh, an emblem of religious syncretism. So she calls herself uh, a Hindu by nature, but a Christian by profession. So she sees those two as aligned with each other as rather than opposed. Um, she conversely views Islam with suspicion uh, until the end of the book. Uh, she becomes enamored with uh, this man that she refers to as courteous and gentle. And he's the Mughal Nawab, Mubarak Uddala. Um, and so the book ends with her uh, kind of her revelation that this Muslim ruler uh, is also um you know, a, a virtuous individual, just like the Brahmin that she's encountered earlier. So the, the Nawab uh, basically counters her earlier chauvinistic kind of descriptions of Islam as barbarous or overly violent. Um, and so she has these kind of revelations about Hinduism and Islam throughout the book. And then the book ends with a very disturbing uh, revelation 
that some irreligious British officers uh, have raped a young Indian girl and have murdered her father. Uh, and so this tragic ending shatters Sophia's young, somewhat naive ideals of religious cosmopolitanism. But the point is, I think, for Gibbs, that British godlessness back home has extended beyond London and has infected Britain's colonial projects as well. And so part of the uh, kind of cosmopolitan impetus of the book uh, for me is this idea um, that all of these various religious characters, the Muslim characters, Hindu characters, Christian uh, are admirable uh, in some way. And rather than um, focusing on their differences, they should come together in some way to uh, stand against this these forms of colonial violence. So your next chapter focuses on the work of poet William Cooper, who seems to have been rather obsessed with imagining the shortcomings and evils of atheists. And he seems to touch upon the characterizations we've already discussed, and perhaps even takes them further. So what can you tell us about him? Yeah, so uh, I'll just start by saying that um, William Cooper is uh, just full disclosure. He's my favorite poet from the period. Um, I'm, I'm in some ways sort of obsessed with him. Like he's, uh, he has many obsessions uh, that he sort of just wrote about over and over. Uh, but he's just a really uh, interesting individual. Um, and so, to just kind of give a brief overview, uh, he he begins his life. He he's uh, his mother dies when he's six. He's sent off to school. This is something that he'll kind of this he raises this issue over and over again in his later writings, how he hated being sent away from his family uh, to boarding school, basically um, because he was bullied at school. There was apparently a, an older boy uh, who bullied him so severely. Uh, and we don't know exactly what form that bullying took, um, but he was bullied so severely that when this boy would come around, Cooper says that he could barely even look above the boys, uh, the buckles on his shoes. Um, and so he's profoundly affected by this um, later in life, uh, he's given the opportunity to become the clerk of, uh, he's basically going to become a clerk in the house of Lords. So he's going to be a secretary of sorts. Um, but he has to pass an oral exam, uh, to demonstrate his sufficiency to occupy this post because there was another man who had uh, a sort of claim for it as well. And so Cooper, uh, was going to have to do this oral exam. Uh, and he's just in many ways, uh, comes across as this very sensitive soul, just like in the, uh, kind of his descriptions of being bullied as a kid or when he talks about his mother dying when he was young. Um, he has to go do this oral exam, but he just can't face it. Uh, he's overly nervous. He obsesses about it. And while he's thinking about it, he describes it as his descent into madness. Uh, and so he starts seeing suicide as his only way out. Um, and this is, he's, he describes all of these things in an autobiography that he, he wrote, uh, about his conversion to evangelicalism. But basically he attempts suicide multiple times. Um, the attempts fail. Uh, and so he's sent to uh, what was basically an insane asylum uh, where he lives for the next couple of years of his life. Um, but there, one of his cousins, a guy named Martin Maiden, uh, visits him repeatedly um, and converts Cooper to evangelical Christianity. So a Christianity that's more about your personal conversion, kind of, uh, you know, being born again or being saved by God's grace uh, rather than uh, through the practices of the Anglican church or the sacraments or something like that. Um, and so Cooper converts to evangelicalism uh, and for the rest of his life, there is a kind of battle waging within him between the particular version of evangelicalism that he takes up, which is very much a Calvinistic um, 
version of it or uh, that's influenced by ideas like predestination um, on the one hand. Uh, and then Cooper's kind of recurrent dealings with mental health issues. Uh, and so he leaves this insane asylum. Um, he writes hymns, he writes poetry, but about every 10 years, he has another mental breakdown. Um, and one of these breakdowns, eventually he has a dream in which he hears what he takes to be an angel speaking to him in Latin, uh, telling him it's all over with you. You've perished. And Cooper takes this to mean that he's no matter what he does, that he's been damned. Right. And so he thinks that he has no possibility for salvation, that he's not one of God's elect. Um, and so kind of one of the ironies or tensions in Cooper's career, his writing career for the rest of his life, uh, for basically the last three decades of the 18th century, is that Cooper is writing verse that seems very religious uh, or that is very religious, while privately he believed that he wasn't part of the church, he wasn't part of God's community, and that he'd been abandoned by God. Um, and so for me, one of the interesting things about this is that Cooper often casts himself as someone who lives in this godless universe, because even though he believes technically that God exists, he believes that God has left him behind. Uh, and so, for instance, in his final poem, which is this really like tragic poem about a sailor drowning in the ocean after uh, his shipmates have to abandon him, um, Cooper compares himself to this sailor and paints it as this godless universe in which God has just left him behind uh, and he's trying to tread water, but he knows that everything is hopeless. And so just like some of the other authors I've discussed, like Pope or Swift or Fielding, he views godlessness as a sort of dystopia, but it's also a dystopia that he thinks he himself is inhabiting. Um, and so that's kind of a, like a potted, very quick overview of this really complex individual. Um, but those are many of the reasons that I'm interested in him in this book. So you say that Cooper's tendency to advocate for an alliance between Christians and adherents of other faiths is indicative of a larger trend. Do you think that the perceived threat of atheism actually made British Christians more tolerant towards people of other faiths? Yeah, that is, that's an excellent question. Um, it's also, uh, for me, very hard to answer. Uh, and so I'll say, uh, maybe this is a cop out, but I'll, um, what I'll say is that in the book, I, I try to be very careful about saying that what these, author, what these authors are imagining or promoting when they talk about um, adherence of other faiths more positively um, is I try to describe this as an ecumenical fantasy, right? So it's not necessarily something that's happening on the ground level that they're actually living out in their real lives. Um, although that was the case sometimes with someone like Pope and Swift who were friends despite the fact that Pope is Catholic and Swift is Anglican. Um, but for instance, for someone like Cooper, um, Cooper lives most of his life or the kind of second half of his life in a very small town called Olney. So he's living in this kind of rural part of England and he never leaves this area, right? Or he's always kind of in these rural environments. So he doesn't actually have um, real life interactions with these sort of figures that pop up in his poetry. So figures like uh, Zoroastrian Persians or Muslims or Hindu Brahmins um, that are all pop up in his poetry. So he's not actually engaging with these people in real life, um, which is why I tend to refer to it as an ecumenical fantasy rather than just straight ecumenicalism or something like that. Um, at the same time, I do think, uh, and you know, this is 
due to my background, I think, as a literary scholar, uh, it, that literature actually does have a real impact on people's attitudes and outlook on the world. Um, and so I can't draw a clear line, you know, from point A to point B to say that, hey, these works that I'm examining definitely caused, uh, you know, the rise in religious ecumenicalism or pluralism or something like that. Um, but I do see those um, kind of those ten, those trends or impulses arising in these works. And so I wouldn't be surprised if this kind of thinking did contribute uh, to an increase in tolerance, uh, at least from some British Christians toward people of other faiths. Um, but again, I can't necessarily make that claim concretely, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It reminds me of something else that I've read that was talking about how the influence of the British Empire expanding through this era um, caused Britons at home to just change their worldview, even though they weren't out there experiencing those other countries, having knowledge of the fact that there were cultures so different from them and having some concrete evidence of what those cultures were like and, and their differing religious beliefs in particular, um, just made them think differently about their own religious beliefs. And so Cooper, in a sense, is like an example. You can see that happening in real time. Like you say, he never leaves the rural little area that he's in. And yet clearly his mind is traveling to these other places and it affects how he sees himself in the world. Yeah, that's great. I think that um, you're totally right. And it's also just, you know, this the idea that the empire is not just something that's out there. It's something that very much affects life uh, at, in Britain as well. Um, yeah, I, I think that's totally spot on. Cool. So in your final chapter, you look at Percy Shelley, who gives us a much different example of a literary treatment of atheism. Shelley, in fact, defends atheism or at least attacks the foolish stereotypes of them. So tell us a little bit about what you think Shelley really believed and then tell us about this fantastic set of prank letters to Mr. Wedgwood. Yeah, so... Um... I'll, I'll start with the uh, the prank letters because um, they're fun. But uh, so <laughs> Shelley, Shelley apparently um, wrote a lot of prank letters when he was an undergrad. Um, so he would write to clergymen, for instance, and pretend to be another clergyman who was having doubts or something like that. Um, and he would hide his real identity to just basically try to draw these individuals out to get them to say things uh, or to get them to trapped in their words or something like that. Um, so he loved to prank people. Um, with this individual, Mr. Wedgwood, um, Wedgwood was a guy who, um, he's part of the, the family of the Wedgwood Potters. Uh, he, he developed this system called, it's called the Othiothograph, um, I think is how you pronounce it. And basically he had this idea that he could produce somehow a system uh, that would help create or recreate a universal language. So apparently at the time there were debates about whether or not there was some universal language, uh, you know, back in the garden of Eden or whether we could return to that, or we could develop a universal language that would allow everyone to communicate. Um, Wedgwood had developed some sort of weird system or he planned to develop a weird system, uh, where he could develop this universal language. So what Shelley does is Shelley starts writing letters to Wedgwood and Shelley's friend, Thomas Hogg, also is writing letters to him as well. And basically the prank is that they're writing these letters, pretending to be really, really enamored with this othiothograph or this universal language and acting like they think it's just an awesome idea, right? When clearly they both thought it was just ridiculous um, and they're kind of making fun of it as a sort of inside joke between uh, themselves. 
Um, what they also do in these prank letters is they slowly start, um, you know, they first begin by sort of naively or innocently posing objections to the othiothograph or acting like, hey, if you just considered X, Y, or Z, you could make it stronger. Um, and then as they go along, they slowly reveal that what their real objection to Wedgwood's project is, or their main concern about it, is its biblical basis, right? So this idea that there was ever a universal language in the first place, and the fact that Wedgwood is apparently deriving this um, from biblical sources, like this idea that he's going back to, um, you know, a pre-fall Eden or something like this. So basically what their letters turn they turn from are these letters which originally are praising this kind of outlandish project of this guy. Uh, and then slowly that praise turns into full-on critique of Christianity and the idea of Christian revelation or that the Bible itself is a coherent document and things of this nature. Uh, and so obviously, as you can expect, at some point, Wedgwood stops responding probably because he realizes, oh no, I've gotten into something uh, that I didn't want to, or that these people aren't actually who I thought they were. Um, and so he just stops responding. Uh, but the letters themselves, um, were they're owned by university college at Oxford. Now, um, they're held in the Bodleian. Uh, I believe they were, uh, acquired by the, um, uh, the library sometime in the early 2010s. Um, and so they've had them for a few years now. Uh, and I only became aware of them because a, a librarian at Oxford, um, Dr. Robin Darwell Smith, uh, alerted me to them. Uh, otherwise, I would have never known about them. But they're just these really great letters to read because um, you get to see Shelley both having fun at the expense of this guy um, who you sort of feel bad for. He's dupes uh, so badly. Um but also getting some insight into Shelley's uh, actual religious beliefs. Um, and so I'll just close, I guess, since you also asked about what his, uh, what, what I think Shelley actually believed. Um, I would, I would personally, um, you know, in the book, I'm more concerned with the way that Shelley represents the character of the atheist rather than his own personal beliefs. But I would personally, um, I think that Shelley, I'm comfortable calling him an atheist because he himself referred to himself as an atheist. Uh, and there are moments, for instance, in his poem, Queen Mab, uh, in which a character celebrates the fact that, uh, quote, there is no God, right? So it's a pretty simple, direct quote uh, about God's non-existence um, for Shelley. Um, where it gets sort of complicated is that Shelley, uh, Shelley, I don't think, was a strict materialist. Uh, he seemed to have some, I, I believe a scholar named Monica Lee has d uh, described his his personal beliefs as something along the lines of spiritual atheism. So he didn't believe in God's existence, but he also believed uh, that there was, um, he did believe that there was some sort of guiding force, which he just called universal love or something along those lines, uh, which was uh, guiding the universe along a more, a path to like uh, some progressive um, ecological and moral regeneration. Um, and so I would call him an atheist, but perhaps along with Monica Lee, identify him as a spiritual atheist. All right. Well, James, I've taken up a lot of your time. I want to thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show. It's been super fun to talk about these ideas and hear about these authors. But before we go, can you tell us, what are you currently working on? Yeah, um, that is, uh, it's, I feel like the COVID-19 pandemic has made that question a harder question than it, than it should be. Um, as it's really slowed things down this past year. But um, with that said, I do have, there are two things um, that are sort of on the horizon right now. One is I'm writing a chapter, 
uh, for a volume on an 18th century Anglo-Irish writer named Oliver Goldsmith. Um, and I'm writing a chapter basically on uh, the religious context in which Goldsmith um, produced his works. Uh, and then I'm also working on an article that's been kind of in the works for um, basically too long now. Um, but it's on hymns and the way that hymns in the 18th century forged uh, forged community. Um, but specifically, I'm interested in the ways that hymns uh, form communities, religious communities around the idea that individual members of that community don't believe what they say they believe, right? And so kind of the weird dynamic there is that a lot of hymns are communal confessions that, Lord, we don't believe, uh, you know, we don't believe all these things that we're saying help our unbelief. Uh, and so I'm just interested in the strange dynamic in which a group of people coming together to say, I'm really struggling to believe this. And all of the people saying that together somehow produces a more cohesive or a, a firmer form of belief than all of those individuals bring in on their own um, before they're reciting or singing that hymn together. So that's sort of a loose uh, description of the project. Hopefully it gets uh, more tighter and coherent itself as, as time goes on. Yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting phenomenon. Well, thanks again. Thanks for coming on the show. It's been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed your book and I was really glad to have a chance to talk with you about it in person. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed it. <laughs>